Welcome to the show this evening. This is Impact Africa Network, and we are the ones who are bringing you power to our women. Uh, and at this point, I'm going to introduce two of the ladies who are going to join me tonight. Uh, one is Joanne Dinda, who's my colleague, and the amazing guest that has taken the time of her morning today uh, just to share her knowledge with us, her vast knowledge. Uh, Nora Denzel, welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. Good after. Good evening. So it's morning for her, it's evening for us. So from wherever you're watching us from, uh, might be different time zones. We are in Nairobi, um, and I'm just going to do a bit of introduction of who we are as Impact Africa Network. So we are an coffee startup studio based here in Nairobi. And what we do, we are really in the business of changing the African narrative. What do we mean by that is that we want to create the next generation of leaders and leaders who are, have high integrity and can influence very well can influence uh, even our politics and how uh, our lives run. Uh, so we do this by we do this by providing 12 month innovation fellowships to recent college graduates where they get a chance at being involved and delving into solving market problems through well vetted ideas. And they do this with the guidance of a mentor network or people who have this experience like Nora here and are able to churn out. The goal is to churn out early stage startups that are sound that can begin to attract certain kind of investment. So we are here to bring you something called Power to our Women. And this is because this is something that is very much in our the heart of the organization, the spirit of the organization. We believe that women are, are the ones who are able to nurture and grow things. And we, we don't see it just as a gender balanced thing, but we see it as something that we need to grow, to change, to grow first of all the startups we create, but also to lead a group of people into change. Uh, so I'll let Joy introduce herself uh, and then she can also introduce Nora a bit properly than I did. <laughs> well, good morning and good evening, everybody, depending on which part of the world you are joining us from. My name is Joy Dinda. I work with Phyllis and Impact Africa Network in the fundraising department as the fundraising and donor relations manager. Tonight, uh, we are joined with by Nora Denzel. Uh, Nora Denzel is it uh, when it comes to women in IT. I mean, she's been there since 1980s. You know, she was a software engineer in IBM from 1984. She moved on to HP um, and later on uh, to other tech uh, companies in the Silicon Valley. So she spent most of her time in the Silicon Valley. Uh, she's also been awarded multiple times for her work uh, in engineering and leadership. For example, in 2012, she was named one of the top 25 women engineers by Business Insider magazine. Uh, so I hope uh, you can relate uh, to what you know Nora has done and we hope her work will in you know inspire other young women here in Africa to you know do it like she did or just surpass it and you know do it even at a more or bigger capacity welcome so much nora and thank you for making time to be with the ladies of impact africa network and other ladies in africa as well Super. thank you joy yeah i mean nora i'm sure you have something to tell us about yourself as much as we've really read about you people would like to hear from you before we delve into the meat of the day of the evening for us Sure. Well, first, I'm delighted to be here. Um, I uh, I was on a nonprofit board, a private board of Ushahidi, back in um, 
Uh, it was after the first election. So it was after 2007. I have to remember the years. And so it was really phenomenal to see the energy, the excitement, and also the just the, the positive success and how much impact it had around the world. And it started as an African technology product to help people in Africa, specifically for the Kenyan election. And then it just blew up worldwide. So I'm very, very bullish on Kenya and African women and on, on the whole uh, African continent in terms of you've got great opportunities. The good thing is you don't have the legacy install base that America had. So you won't have to deal with a lot of the problems we did. Oh, great, great. I, I mean, we're going to get into a lot of that sure. discussion, um, taking from your more than 30 years experience uh, at this point. Joy, you can go ahead, take the wheel. <laughs> No, I'm just wondering, you know, having started in the tech industry, you know, pre in the pre-internet era, <laughs> did you know you were going to be, did you always know you were going to be a software engineer? Is it something you landed on? Please take us through your journey. How, how did you get there? How did you get to software engineering? Yeah, it's a great question. So yes, I can be old enough to be your mother and I'm okay to say how old I am. I just turned 58. I know it'll happen to you one day, so don't. As I am now, you will be. And as you are, I once was. But when I was young, I didn't really think about career. I grew up in a very rural environment, kind of secluded. So I didn't really interact with a lot of people other than family. And we were on a farm. So if anybody came from a farm, you know about child labor. You just work. You do whatever you can, depending on the size that you are. Not your age so much as your size. Um, I loved school, mostly to get me away from the farm, to be very honest about it. And it, it gave me structure. And I always gravitated toward math and science because I felt like they had answers. I had a lot of trouble with English. Reading a story and then saying what was important or what happened, or there's a story behind the story. It was very hard for me to... I, art and English and history seemed like um, uh, gossip for really smart people. So I just <laughs> gravitated toward math and science. But I had no concept of what I wanted to do or really the outside world that much. We didn't have the internet. We had a set of encyclopedias, which I read up to the letter V. So then, um, and not, you know, there's just a guidance person in high school. And he, he said, you should go to college. I said, okay. And then he said, uh, what do you want to major in? And I said, I don't know. And then he just said, what do you like to do? And then, you know, just asking five questions. He said computer science, because it's a mix of math and science, but it's not a hard science. That was the, the gist of it. I came into my first programming classes, official ones. I taught myself to program, but then I took up my official class and thought, if people will pay me for doing this, I'll do it. You know, <laughs> Once I learned there was money in it, not that I'm motivated by money, but I had many school loans. So it's probably, mm -hmm. I wish I had a different, we didn't have computers when I grew up. We had the early ones. So I would program those, but I didn't see them much on TV, et cetera. It's just a guidance counselor said, just major in this, see what happens. I know that's not a great answer, but it's the truth. We like the truth. We like the truth. That's really interesting. I like, uh, you mentioned a very relatable thing that you had a, a bulk of students loans, <laughs> which is yeah, something um, uh, people can relate to here locally. And you take yeah. loans out as well? Yes. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. I had nine years. I had to pay it back for nine years. Oh, wow. But what it was, you just, that's like the most debt I've ever had. Just had to 
that's why I chose IBM coming out of undergraduate because um, there were startups, um, but I wanted a stable company where I got a paycheck because I was deathly afraid of defaulting on the loan. That was just something I, my family had never done and I wouldn't do. So, so that's uh, why, yeah. All right, Nora, I know you have a very interesting journey, especially with IBM where you started just as a software engineer, you know, and ended up in the very senior executive positions, uh, managing 110 countries. Uh, those times. So um, I would just like you to take our audience through that journey because I feel like it's important for them to, you know, to understand that this doesn't happen overnight. <laughs> well, it's funny when people start to recognize you, they will call you an overnight success. And they, they sure. realize that, um, you know, I've been working every day since I remember being alive. Uh, again, the farm work started then multiple jobs to pay for college, then multiple jobs in college while I was getting a degree. Then, you know, so they're like, oh my goodness, she's this overnight success. And you just laugh in your head because it takes a long time to make an overnight success. But at IBM, I started as a software engineer uh, with very, I won't go through it, but it was a very tricky path to get there because I didn't go to a school. I don't wanna say that's not considered important, but wasn't a normal school that IBM would recruit from. So it was just a series of, somebody introduced me, somebody said, I'll interview her, but I'm sure we won't take her. Somebody said, let's take a chance. And so I got my first opening and I knew I was lucky and I knew it was a gift. And I knew I was gonna take full advantage of the gift and that I was not, go I had a chip on my shoulder of, I'm gonna prove you guys wrong. Sorry, my phone is ringing and I've just turned it off. So um, at IBM, I kind of came in with a very kind of aggressive mindset of, uh, damn, I'm going to, sorry, do you have the same problems with your iPhone? I'm going to, uh, yeah. there you go. And I, sorry about that. I'm going to learn everything I can from every single person. So you get a job in a company and they tell you, this is your job. You do this. And so I made sure I understand who's before me in the process, who's after me in the process, what's the ultimate goal, what are the financials on this process, how do we sell the process. So I worked, worked very hard, so much so that people would say, what's wrong with you? Like, we don't have to work that hard. In those days, the computers were mainframes, so they take the systems down on the weekend, so we couldn't even log in. But I would take home books and I would take home things to study. I would go to the IBM branch office where they sold the products that we were making and ask them, to, can I please see a customer? Which in those days was unheard of. So at IBM, I really came in with a chip on my shoulder because they didn't say, you're the best, you're the proud, you're the bravest, and you're gonna do well. They said, we're gonna take a chance on you. We have some women, they usually don't advance. You know, we'll see what happens. <clears throat> I knew that because they told me that. So I came in with a chip on my shoulder. And I think also coming from a big family, at the end of the family, you're always fighting for everything, whether it's food, the car, the hairdryer, name it. You're just in a battle every morning. So you just learn that nothing's free, nothing's handed to you. And I just need to be, I'm always the underdog and underrated. And so no one thinks I'll do well. So at IBM, what I learned from there, the lesson I took is always learn from the best wheel maker, everything you can. And so you ask people, who's the best at whatever, marketing, you know, um, understanding product release cycles, sales, just, 
And every single person, it's just like the college or just like the high school playground. If you ask who's best in math, everybody knows. So I would have what I'd call informational interviews. I think I learned the term from somewhere. I could have made it up, but all it meant was I'd love to have lunch with you. And I really want to pick your brain. And I'm going to ask you some great questions and I'm going to be quiet as I can. And I want to learn everything that I can. So I didn't come in as a know-it-all. I wanted to be a learn-it-all. I'm going to learn every single thing. I'm just going to use you to learn everything that I can so that one day when I'm at a smaller company, I'll learn how to operate a company if I had enough money and time. Because when you go to a smaller company, you never have enough money or time. But I wanted to understand what do people who have money and time, how do they develop products? So that was my biggest lesson from IBM. Learn from people. Um, and even if they have a view that wasn't um, my own view, I really had to change my mindset. When people talk to me sometimes, they act like they're a, like, a, like a priest trying to get me to believe what they believe, or they act like they're a prosecutor trying to prove that I'm wrong. Um, or they, you know, they just, they, they talk to you for different reasons. I always approached it as a scientist. Why is it you believe the way you believe? I was always trying to uncover the mystery of why are our ideas different? What makes them the same? And just, I never got excited about their method of communicating. I always approach it as a scientist. What are the facts? What can we agree on? Where's their middle ground? But I'm not trying to get you on my side. And I'm also not going to try to defend my position. I'll change it if I need to. So that, that's the second thing. Approach like a scientist and learn from the best wheel maker. So that's IBM. It was 13 years from software engineer to executive. And I also went to school at night again, except IBM paid this time, uh, and earned a master's degree. And my other rule of advice, if anyone wants to pay for your schooling, take it. <laughs> you know? like, uh, I know I couldn't afford it because I had too much debt but they said they would pay and I took them up on the offer. So that's IBM. That was the first, um, first experience that I had. So I don't know if we want to pause there or take questions. I don't want to. Um, I think I could throw in a question, you know, uh, being in the Silicon Valley for 30 years, I'm sure you've seen a lot of change and transformation. And, you know, one of those, changes that we've been advocating for is you know inclusion and diversity um i know in the 80s there weren't that many women in technology as the years come uh you know more and more women are coming in but I, do you think we are there yet in terms of diversity and inclusion um do i think we're there okay we're not where we used to be that's good but we're not where we need to be and I would say this for Africa, and I would say it for the United States, when you have such important technology decisions to be made and such important jobs, having half the population either not attracted to it, or once they're attracted to it, not to be um, uh, celebrated for their differences is a really losing strategy as a country. Your country's competitiveness depends on the strength of your patent portfolio, among other things, and a lot of technological infrastructure still being built. So you really want to have those that create technology mirror those that use it, which means it's diversity of all types. Um, when I came to the Silicon Valley, um, there was not a lot of diversity, and yet we didn't talk about it, and there certainly were no laws 
Um, so I just made it a, a promise to myself. I always stood out in the meeting, not anymore, but I was the youngest and the only woman in almost every room that I was in. So I would go to a storage conference, for example, I was in computer storage and people would remember me because I was the only woman. And so they'd have a panel and I stuck out because I looked different than everyone else. No one else um, at the time, pretty much it was, it was mostly white men, um, some Asian Pacific Islanders, some from India, but it was pretty much uh, white men ran everything. They had the money, they were the investors, they led every company and they, and they also came from 10 schools of which I didn't come from. So I made it a point that I wanted to stand out, not just stick out. I couldn't control sticking out because when you look at me compared to the five other people on the panel, they're all named John or Mike, you know, and they're all male. But um, I, I knew I stood out. It was like, how did, how did she get in here? I wanted to stand out and not stick out. And so um, that served me very well, meaning if anyone wanted to try to, I don't know, ask me out, ask me to help them sew a button on, ask me to make the cake for the, you know, some kind of traditional male, female role, I just didn't go there. And I always wanted to talk about storage or the problem at hand. And people just got used to me. And I think some even felt I might have been part of the majority. So I just kind of I got along and I didn't point out that I was different. And I didn't, I didn't really advocate for women until I was in a position of authority. And then I was allowed to set the norm. Until then, I didn't want to get anyone mad because I knew that if they all decided they didn't like me or they didn't like what I said, I'd get fired. You know, not for that reason, but they'd find a reason that I wouldn't be on the team. Hopefully that made sense. But times are different now. You guys are lucky. We've had Time's Up. We've had Me Too. So I think a lot of the things that happened to me wouldn't happen to any of you now. Maybe you guys can tell me how you feel. Oh, of course, uh, I, I feel very lucky. We are very lucky, Phyllis uh, can attest to that. Uh, one of those reasons is because, of course, we work for Impact Africa Network, mm. an organization that actually advocates for women to be in this leadership uh, pro, uh, to be in these leadership positions. Um, we believe that women, you know, possess this. Uh, nurturing and you know qualities that are key to people-centric environments such as the startups we are trying to create here so for us uh, we are very lucky to, to you know to have that provided for us uh, but you know it's not the case for every woman in Africa you know we still have to fight for our positions in in this in these boardrooms and I have to ask um, Nora um, being that you've been there and you've been in your senior vice president, uh, all the C-suite positions in this uh, Silicon Valley companies, did you feel at any point that you know being a woman impacted the way the way you led your teams or your organizations? And you know how was that? That's a good question because um, when I I'm a big data person, so I just. Uh, always need to see the numbers, see the see the studies, see the peer reviewed. And they did a study on the most successful leaders. And I was thinking, all right, let me find out. Is it the school they went to? Is it the, the grades? What is it? And it really was the leaders that could adapt quickly to the matters yeah. at hand. So whether you're at wartime at a company or peacetime or you're in COVID, it's who can adapt the fastest and change their style. So you don't change your values, but you change your style to 
um, take advantage of the situation. So when you ask that question, it's interesting because it's funny, the way I perceive myself out is not, I don't know if it's male or female, but I, um, I have kind of an operating set of instructions of these are the things we don't violate. And so it's, you know, everyone knows, like, if you're trying to cheat, don't come to me because I will tell, I, you know, I'm not very good at anything. It's just the way I was raised down the middle. Um, but people, it's funny being a female, I would get other females thinking like, I want to understand their personal problems or uh, I'm a psychologist or, you know, and I'm thinking, I always thought to myself, is this something you would have brought to a male leader? Yeah. You know, so, so I think people perceive me as having nurturing, nurturing um, kind of capabilities that I could or couldn't have. And I choose if I'm going to, uh, you know, share a personal story, if it makes sense at the time. But I, but I, um, I always felt it was on me when people saw me, she better not be bossy. She better not raise her voice. She's too aggressive. She's and it, and I listen to it now in the board meetings when we look at executive resources who can replace the CEO. So we'll talk about Bill. Oh, he's confident. He's strong. He'll make his point. And then we'll talk about Judy. You know, she doesn't smile enough. I'm like, what the hell? Well, you know, is smiling a criteria? So I think the the stereotypes and biases were on me. I'm not sure. I do think I adapt my style to the to whatever we're doing. If we're going to coach basketball, if we're going to, whatever we're doing, the faster I can adapt and make it, make sure I don't want to be just right. I want to be effective. So you just change your user interface depending on what you need. That's really what's helped me. I don't think being a woman helped or hurt, but I do think people's expectations of me, I needed to modify because I'm not, I, you know, they judge me on the woman in their life. Like, she's not like my wife. She's not like my mother. She's not, because they didn't have other women in business to judge me against. Mm. Hopefully that made sense to you. I don't know, but that's how I feel. Yeah, yeah. I understand it. I understand it. I think I've seen it happen, of course, to me I, on a lower scale than yours, uh, but I, I see where it comes from. I want to take you back to that same topic about women, because I'm just curious, this just dropped in my mind. But the 30 years that you've been in the game, and things, of course, have changed. More women are being involved. We are not there yet. Would you say, would, can you pinpoint a certain positive change because women have been involved more, especially in the tech space, and they're occupying the seats more, they're being acknowledged? Can you say, I don't know, performance? I don't know what that is. But can you say there's something that has changed now? just because women are at the table? Yeah, you know, I definitely, well, I definitely see it in the boardroom. When you have at least three women, the conversation changes. I mean, um, women will ask different questions uh, than men typically do, typically do. In investing, there's been study after study after study that says that women aren't as aggressive and they tend to make more money over the long term because they don't have that big emotional... Well, and it's a study based on data. So I'm not trying to, this isn't women against men. This is women and men and understanding. Yeah, yeah. Definitely think designs of products and features mm -hmm. um, are starting to change because we have women around. So if I go backwards a little bit, um, when the first car airbags came out, it was an all male design team. And at, at the point of the design, they needed to understand where to place these ag airbags and how much they should detonate. And so they said, all right, let's get the standard sizes of men. So they took a, a, a table that said, here's the average heights of men. 
that would be driving the car and here's the average weights. And so they calibrated the airbags uh, for the typical male. At the time, nobody even thought about it, but the early airbags actually killed women and children. They didn't oh, wow. take into account, you'll put a baby seat in the front car and it's yeah. the baby. So we had uh -huh. to learn that um, after some babies had died, unfortunately, and some women had died because their height and weight were not, were not the same average as these. Uh -huh. So I've definitely seen it, um, for example, in health apps, uh, especially that do tracking. Um, I, you know, I don't want to get too graphic, but there's certain things that women track. Like if you say to a woman in, in, in any clinic, um, have you tracked your data? Everyone knows what we track, the number one thing. And then yeah. these health apps will come out and we'll track everything but women, but what women track. And so yeah. I see women on the design side, um, the, the question gets asked in the room. One, yeah. one story I have from a board, we did uh, kiosks. It's, I don't, I, we, we're not in Africa, but it was uh, renting DVDs really inexpensively, $1.50. You could rent a DVD, take it home and bring it back. So we were going to use that technology to put samples of women's hair care products, lotions, because on average, women will use 10 or 20 products a day and men use two, if you're lucky. So we were going to do these samples and the board being all male, we're like, who would buy this? Who would want samples? Why would someone switch their shampoo? What's, why do they use three things on their hair? Shouldn't they just use one? Can't you use shampoo for both soap and shampoo? And that was an example of having a non-diverse board and not the right questions because their life experience was you just use soap to wash your hair and, and bathe. So I definitely see changes when women are in the room. And just think about it yourself. You have a dinner party that's all men. You have a dinner party, half women and men. The conversations are different. Yeah, true. I like the fact that you've highlighted it's not it's not it's not a competition, but where women yeah. are placed, it helps it grow. Yeah. So we're not we're really yeah. competing, but we right. I don't know, maybe it's God given. Uh we mm -hmm. are able to nurture. And that's something that I think we also need to preach to ourselves as women to know that's true, we can do that. Yeah. So let me take you back to the heart and spirit of who Impact Africa Network is. Like I'd mentioned when we started, we are a nonprofit startup studio that is working so hard to ensure that young people in this market get access at building things, building companies. We are in the game of ensuring that people who look like me, like Joy, can actually create things in this market and own them and actually create employment. Um, because that's not happening because we have you're in a different setting. And the reason why we are doing this is because we want to solve many problems, one of them being the rate of unemployment and also just having a league of people who have high integrity and they have, they have worked their way up and can, can be a good example to the upcoming generation, right? And so the goal for us is to have 10 scale-ups in 10 years, uh, that's 2030, with a combined value of $10 billion. Now, yeah. seeing that you, you have been in the game for 30 years, definitely in a different market. Do you think, what's your view on this? I mean, I would like to hear what have you seen? Um, what, what have you seen in terms of company, companies growing, startups growing? Uh, yeah, what, what would you say about our goal, our, our dream, our vision? Yeah, you know, I think, it's, I think it's fantastic. I think it's bold. I think it's aggressive. And I think that's an important, an important element. I do know um, in the Silicon Valley, having 
I think psychologists call it like the neighbor network or something like that. But what it means, it's almost like in a family when there's a role model, whether it be your parents or a brother or sister, everybody starts to coalesce around it and to try to do that as well. So there's a, if you have a town that consistently, consistently, consistently fails, the mindset is, oh, we'll never win. I know like when I, when we grew up in America, we're told you can do anything and we just believe it. Even though it isn't true, we just believe yeah. it. It was funny when I went to Great Britain and uh, I asked them about winning an Olympic medal and they're just, or winning Wimbledon. They're like, oh, we don't think we ever will. I mean, they just say that. I mean, just, just saying that when you focus on we'll never succeed, you probably won't succeed. I think they did win eventually with the man from Scotland. But going back to what you're doing, having examples and role models and the other, I think, big secret to Silicon Valley, which was surprising to me, is we don't really compete. We share everything. So if I want to have a um, lunch with someone that's done something that I'm interested in, they'll tell me everything. If I ask what was yeah. the hardest part, there's very little confidentiality agreements here. Now with Apple and Google, the big companies, they'll have those. But small startups, we share all the tools. And then you think, well, why would I share with her? Because she's kind of in my space. Mm. We share because one, we might learn something. And we also share because we have confidence that we'll out-execute them. You know, it's like, and yeah. then we're also thinking if she is better, it's probably better for Africa that that one succeeds anyway. So it's a really funny mindset because in school, we don't do that. It'd be called, I think, cheating. So I think that would be not that you ask for advice, but that's what I think made Silicon Valley grow faster than it would have because people weren't trying to hide. They were showing yeah. everyone out in the public to try to get feedback. Mm. But I love what you're doing because you need role models. Then you get on a flywheel effect. And if you don't get oh, wow. a couple few successes, then people start to lose heart. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I mean, you're mention you're almost using the 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 words that we use within I am that our CEO keeps talking about, the flywheel mentorship. Yep. So that's gonna be my next question as to what do you think would aid the exponential growth of startups? And and I think you mentioned about collaboration, which is one of our biggest um, values, not our biggest, one of our main values at IAN. But something else I must repeat for the audience to hear, especially in our in our part of the world where people don't expect things to, to succeed right. because you've seen a lot of failure. So we hold back a lot. And that's something mind, mentally we have to deal with. I have to deal with every day. I think knowing that if you just put your mind to something and, and just pursue it. Um, yeah, I, I don't know whether you have any other thing to add to the effect of what else is needed for exponential growth when you're trying to grow startups, a team of startups in this case, yeah. You know, what I, from when I started in this, I always thought it was what I knew. And so I wanted to be the smartest person in that class. And I worked on that through high school, through college. I'm not brilliant. I just work harder than anyone else. I mean, I don't, I don't pick up on things. I, I know right where I am academically, so I'm not the best at anything, but I'll, I'll, I'll stick it out longer than any of you. I, I, I can, I have tenacity, but I think that, um, my mindset is different. It's not what you know. So you come into mm -hmm. your startup saying, I know this. I know people drink out of coffee mugs. I know that there aren't any. I know, I know, I know. But it's not what you know. It's how fast you can learn. And so in the, in the Valley, we used to use the word a lot, pivot. But 
I think it's kind of out of fashion now, but it's really setting a learning agenda. What is it I want to learn in the next 90 days? My hypothesis mm -hmm. is everybody mm -hmm. in that town will want this. Mm -hmm. And I go in like I know the answer, but when mm -hmm. I'm testing it, I test it as if I don't know. So it isn't what I know, it's how fast I can learn. And I'll tell you, you feel quite vulnerable by when you say, I don't know. I mean, you have to say, you know, we want to sell 100,000 of these. This is the profit margin. You have to say that with conviction and instill confidence. But you also have to be brave enough to say that hypothesis was wrong, but what I did learn, and then we will switch it. So I think it's not what you know. It's how fast you can learn. But if you stay with your idea too long, then, you know. And then the other huge thing that we say out here is we bet on jockeys, not on horses, meaning we really bet on the people. So if you can do something when the odds are against you and no one believes mm. it, then we give you a ton of money knowing like, God, if this is what she can do without any money, time, mm. or people, what can she do with money, time, and people? So we bet on the jockeys because um, we figure they'll figure out the market over time. You know, the market will be the market. But the people, how do they handle criticism? How do they handle failure? Do they listen? Can they learn? Have they changed mm. their mind? Those mm. kind of things we're always looking for because those separate the high achievers from those that do pretty well, but they're not the highest achievers. Great. Oh, wow. I think this coming from a woman who's had 30 years experience, I think it lands home, um, the ability to stay open-minded and, and allow yourself to learn, not just allow yourself, but make the initiative to learn. So we'll jump right back to the more women questions. Okay. I wanted to understand we've gone into startups and everything. But I'd like to know what is the one mistake you frequently witness women making in their career or at the workplace? You mentioned that uh, women never used to stay longer. I think someone told you when you had started and it motivated you to know, to, to know that you were going to stay. Yeah. So what is the thing that you notice that women, the mistakes that women made um, or, you, or you think? Bunch that I see which are... I don't know if it's in the water and we have to check if it's the same in Africa. Is, yeah. And I just put up, I didn't write the article, but I read it and I, and I couldn't believe it still exists, but it was an article about self-confidence and it was comparing women and men. And it was a, it was a qualitative study. So it's not just someone's opinion. Mm -hmm. And in the study, and I see this at work as well, they would have women and men take a test. And before the test, they would ask the women, how well do you think you'll do? And they would ask the men. And in every single case, the men out predicted how they would do and the women under predicted how they would do. Um, in the cases when the test had been taken, um, after the woman and men had seen all the questions and answered them, they again asked, how do you think you did? And again, the men out you know, I think I got a hundred and the women were like, oh God, I'm not even sure I passed. And when the scores were known, um, the women would say, well, God, I was really lucky. And the man, if he did well, was, I was very skilled. And if he did poorly, he blamed it on the test. The test was really stupid. If the woman did poorly, she blamed it on herself. And I see that in my home life as well. My husband thinks he can do anything, anything. And if he can't do it, he says what it is was stupid. The thermostat was designed poorly. The car engine shouldn't be in the middle. It should be on the side. You know, he will blame the object. And when I, I don't think I can do anything. Like, I don't know how to dig a ditch. And if I can't, I think I'm stupid. And I think that that is a difference uh, between women and men 
Men will project confidence if they even haven't done it before. And a woman will always tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Meaning, I've never done this. I'm really afraid of doing it. I might screw it up. And so I think that it's important that as women, we understand not only the stereotypes, but the qualitative data on what some of our traits may be and learn to um, um, project more confidence, have an executive presence, um, even though inside, I just got really comfortable feeling uncomfortable all the time, especially as an engineer, when you get promoted and rewarded for really knowing what you're doing. As I became a manager more T-shaped and ran multiple divisions, 10,000 people, I couldn't know at the level that I, um, that I had to speak at. I couldn't know everything. And that was very, very scary for me because I felt like I was lying. But it really isn't lying. It's just what business people do. We make projections on how a merger and acquisition are going to yeah. are going to happen. And if it works, it does. We believe in the projection, but if it isn't, we stand up quickly and say, I was wrong. It's going to be more revenue or less revenue. So I think men have easier time dealing with ambiguity and speaking about things and projecting their confidence in things that they have never done. I think women take a more backseat role to that. So I don't know if that, does that resonate with you guys? Is that the same culture in Kenya or no? Might not. Yeah, definitely, and, definitely. And, and it's worse in Africa because we have been, we have been configured yes. to think the men know better. Even when sometimes they don't, they're testing the, they're testing the idea. Um, yeah, yes. But, yeah. Yeah. So I think one of the part of doing a very good job is telling others about the job you did. And a lot of women will say, I don't want to be that guy that just promotes themselves. And I tell them, you're not promoting yourself. You're promoting the problem that you solved. And you're reducing the learning curve of others. Of mm. course, you get credit for it. But you're not saying, Phyllis, Phyllis, Phyllis. Mm. You're saying, mm. here's how I overcame the problem. And you're teaching joy in the others. And then yeah. as a result of that, all leaders are good teachers. And you're, you're blowing your own horn in such a way it's not really offensive. Yeah. Oh, great. All right. Now yeah. I know yeah, we, Africa, we, time, we but, develop um, innovation leaders. Um, we have young men and women working on projects. And in those projects, we teach them to be innovators and at the same time uh, to become leaders in their different professions. I'm just curious to know what advice would you give to the young uh, ladies in the innovation innovation space and those even outside uh, of our organization? What would you give advice would you give to young ladies who are stepping into leadership positions, their first leadership positions, probably at very young ages? I've seen some uh, 25. Uh, I've, I've seen our youngest is 23 already. Um, oh. So what advice would you give to these young ladies as they step into this position? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So first of all, you're a leader before you get the title. So I became an official IBM manager at probably 25, maybe 26, coming out of school at 22. But you're a leader before anybody gives you the title. And some leaders that have the title aren't really good leaders. So I think the title is important. And that's the same way about marriage, by the way. I think you're married way before the paperwork, and I think you're divorced way before that. Leadership is an attitude, and it's also influencing others um, that may or may not have a direct reporting line to you. So leaders are great influencers to get other people to do things that make sense for the business. So point number one is you're a leader before you get the title. 
Point number two, when you do get the title, you're really positioned by your followers. It's really funny for me when I interview employees and ask them, hey, what's your leadership philosophy and how do you lead? And then I talk to their followers and say, what is you know joy like as a leader? And if I get two different responses, then I know that leadership is probably, there's a projection that leaders trying to have going out, but it isn't the same person they are in their mind. And they're trying to make you perceive something that isn't there. So the best advice I'd give you is you need to be yourself and you need to be a better version of yourself. So some of you are outgoing, some of you are quiet, some of you are funny, some of you are not funny. And so just use your strengths, be yourself. And probably the biggest thing is integrity. The number one thing people rate over and over again on their leaders is integrity. Once you lose the trust, it's very hard to to guard that as as if it's precious gold. And I I do have one more point is people like their leaders positive. No one wants to lead a leader saying, you know, Jesus, COVID thing. I don't know when it's going to end. It's getting old. Like, you know, you want to be as positive as you can. Yeah. Use your neighbors and your husband as someone that you can be the sounding board. That's what I Oh, wow. Yeah. I think about about 45 minutes in, um, but I'm just curious, what's 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 the future like for Nora? This is on a personal view. How are you keeping yourself in terms of, um, as a leader, what are you, what are you, how are you ensuring that you're continuing to grow as a leader, essentially? That's what I'm asking. It's a great question. So first of all, my philosophy on career development is I do just-in-time planning. So I'm not someone mm-hmm. that has a notebook or a spreadsheet that says, I'm here and these are all the steps. When I start stop learning or learning at the rate that I need to learn to be happy, that's when I put my head up and say, what's next? Because um, I'm not my best self unless I'm on a vertical learning curve, learning something that I didn't know before. I just I just crave learning. I have a lifelong learner and a learner. Mm-hmm. But I think what's next is I had started a mentoring service um, for charity inside, well, it was worldwide, but inside the United States was it was founded. And I really enjoyed the one-on-one, the listening. It had just warmed my heart when I saw that person later, either they call you back or you see it in the news and you just feel so good because it's about them. What I've been just thinking in my head is really about how do you mentor at scale? Like it's been great one-on-one, you know, the people that I've touched, the money that we've, but now I'm thinking, okay, you know, how do you, how do you scale that up without exhausting yourself because you can't scale it up in a one-on-one model so i'm not there yet but i'm trying to just look around watch other people see what other people do and see is there a way to do mentoring at scale so that's my that's my thinking and actually that's what you guys are doing the impact africa yeah yeah yeah. you know i was gonna say you're you're already doing it So maybe that's yeah. what doing this is to learn. Yeah, in this particular it. context, you're yeah. already doing this. Yeah, because you know, I'm 58. I'm in my back 40 years. So you got to say, okay, what what legacy do you leave? I don't want to build with my name on it. I don't need any of that. But mm-hmm. I'd like to touch other people, if if that makes any sense. Great. All right. Um, um Nora, I would like to just fire one last question. Uh, before we go, uh, there are so many, you know, women leaders tuned in and actually i would like you to give us a challenge i know you've been there uh you've done it now you're in board service what do you think is the next you know the next thing for the next the generation of women leaders behind you 
what is it that we can achieve that you feel probably didn't? Yeah, I would say the next generation of women leaders, you have so much more power than you think. You have the voting power, you have the economic power. You, we have left you a mess. <laughs> hey, the good news is there's a little tiny house at the end of the road. The bad news yeah. is it's going to fall down and it's a mess. We've done a world-class job, not only in your country, but in our own country of not, I mean, issues that aren't new. We've left you a world-class, not only problem, but the opportunity is um, with social unrest now circling the globe, you've got a burning platform. So I hate to leave it on you, but I know you're going to be on the earth longer than I am. Mm-hmm. And I think you're talking about mindset, Phyllis, is the mindset I need is first that I can solve a problem. And second is I need to believe things before I see them. Mm-hmm. Most people, when you come from an environment like my home wasn't the best, I didn't believe anything until I saw it. I couldn't because I couldn't trust that it would be what I needed it to be. But if I think of what you talked about, Phyllis, in Kenya is, you know, we have fits and starts and you start to lose. And I feel that in Brazil. I felt that in India before Modi. And I'm feeling that now in America, believe me. But you believe it before you see it. And that will tide you over when the going gets tough and your hope goes low. But you can't go into it saying, I'm going to wait for the other millennials and I will believe it when I see it. You have to say, I'm someone that can believe things. And you just trick your mind of, I believe this. I just believe with all my heart we can solve it. So that's what I would say is you're more powerful than you think. You're stronger than you think. And you can affect systemic change. And if you don't believe that, you know, we'll probably have another failed. You know, it'll be good. It'll be good enough. But will it be great? Is the question. I think that great. is a profound challenge for, for all of us. And I, I hope the ladies were, you know, we are paying attention throughout um the conversation and you know and take and they will take on the challenge hopefully Good because of course this is yeah this is not a one woman job we all have to rally together in order for change to happen and especially for Africa and us changing the narrative. Yes. And we'll so have, we have but you there's more of you than us and we will help you because we feel bad what we left. That's amazing. Uh we can count on your support. Yeah. <laughs> I will definitely be you know approaching you on some Please of these do. issues. All right, I mean, we have a question from the audience. Sorry, Phyllis, okay. go ahead. You can go ahead, you can go ahead. I've seen your 50 minutes in, so maybe we can just take one question. Yeah. Yes, one question from the audience is, how does Nora ensure she has a work-life balance? <laughs> oh, well, that's why I stopped working at 50, because I didn't have one. <laughs> And when I, when I turned 33, I realized one important thing. And the thing was, I hadn't, decide, I hadn't decided for myself what the definition of success was. I told you about the school loans. I was just working to pay the loans. Mm-hmm. Senior executive, all this stuff, all these accolades. And I literally came home to an empty apartment. And nobody had called to say, hey. So I kind of, my family hadn't been calling in a long time. So our relationships weren't strong. I wasn't married. I had no kids. I had no pets. I had no plans. <laughs> so, so now I have work-life balance. I schedule it into my diary. Um, and I realize that self-care is not selfish. And so Absolutely. I'm a person if I, if I do it. But I, I don't know if I recommend 
the track the the path I was on because I just was a workaholic, which is fine if you want to die a workaholic. So now I'm married. I have hobbies. I have interests. Hopefully, I'm interesting, more interesting, but <laughs> a long time to get there. So my advice to you is to find what success is and then guard it because if if not, you'll get something, but it might not be what you wanted. Mm. Awesome. What are some of the, the hobbies you're doing? Just curious. Oh, wow. Well, we used to travel, but that ended in March. Um, we have a beehive. We collect, uh, we, um, we, we're a little farmer. We grow grapes for, for wine, and then the local man makes wine for that. So that's been really fun. And I took up piano again. I learned Bohemian Rhapsody through the pandemic. So if you ever want a bad piano recital, you just call me up. I've learned I don't have to be great at anything. I can just oh. be good enough and stop being a perfectionist. So that's been that's been the breakthrough on hobbies because I wouldn't do anything unless I could compete at an Olympic level. And that just means you don't do anything. Amazing. Oh, wow. Um, yes, Phyllis, please go ahead. You seem to be going on and say it. Well, uh, of course, uh, Nora is such a wonderful guest and just 50 minutes just flew by. Um, I'm sure we had so many other questions. Uh, you can take the conversation online. Uh, you can follow, follow Nora on Twitter and on LinkedIn. Her name, her name's Nora M. Denzel, as you, as you see on your screen. And, you know, you can catch up with her over there. I like her Twitter. She has you know, some nuggets of wisdom every every now and then. Uh, so please follow her there. Um, a lot of people liked your points on learning, learning, learning. Uh, that's one thing I've gotten from our audience from reading their comments. That's one thing they keep mm. on reiterating. And I can see the ladies here saying self-care is not selfish. So <laughs> they're really into the self-care. Stop taking <laughs> care of everybody else. Yes, they, they need to do that. And so, uh, ladies and gentlemen in the audience, um, we are coming to the conclusion of this live cast. Uh, but before we conclude, I would like to mention that Impact Africa Network is a non-profit uh, startup studio committing to changing the African narrative. And we firmly believe that women are critically important in this mission, as you have seen from our conversation today. And, you know, we would like you to support our work. Uh, you can join our micro donations program for as little as $30 a month and be part of this exciting movement towards creating a new African future.